0: Hello, and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I am James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Our guest today is Charles Johnson. Charles Johnson is a scholar, an award-winning novelist, an essayist, a screenwriter, a cartoonist, and a skilled martial artist. He's also a Buddhist and a longtime Tricycle contributing editor. Johnson's latest work, Grand, is a book of advice for his grandson, Emery, and much of the advice is rooted in Buddhist wisdom. Chuck, as he is known by his friends, is a person of many trades and talents. In our conversation, we explored how passions are discovered and how they can be brought together in a life well lived. As he says, we are verbs, not nouns. We are processes, not products. I spoke to Chuck via Skype from his home in Seattle, with the pandemic and the recent anti-racist protests fresh in our minds. Dr. Charles Johnson, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we're here to discuss your book, Grand, which is a book full of advice for your grandson, Emery. but it began as an essay. How'd it get to be a book?
1: Well, I first did uh, an essay called Advice for Emory mm-hmm. for a local publication called Third Act. It's um, aimed at uh, senior citizens. And we were asked to give advice to our grandchildren. So I wrote a two-page essay with 10 points of advice that I thought might be very fertile for him to think about and it got a good response from the readership of third act magazine so I pitched the idea to my editor John Glynn who has his own new imprint at HarperCollins, and he snapped it up and I wrote the expansion of the essay last fall
0: well I'm glad you did it's a great book You know, it's interesting, we have a picture of you and Emery, your grandson, from a few years ago, and you sent us a new picture, and he's doubled in size, I'd say. How old was he when you started, and how old is he now?
1: Well, he doubled in age. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) That happens.
1: Yeah, that picture is uh, four years old, and he's now eight years old. Uh
0: Okay, so this is a book of advice, yet you see advice as even our understanding of wisdom to be sometimes problematic. Can you say a little bit about that?
1: Yes, yeah, so I was very tentative and hesitant to pass along advice because advice is based upon my experience. When I was eight years old, I was in the 1950s, actually, just about the time that the civil rights movement began, you know, in, in Montgomery. And you've seen the transformations that our society has gone through since the 1950s. So, whatever I have to say to young people today, something useful to them, you know, since it is based on the past. I would like to think that there are certain perennial ideas or perennial truths that do cross decades, centuries, and maybe even millennia. So those are the points that I tried to bring out in grand, starting with a very old bit of wisdom from the ancient Athenians, know thyself, which is going to be a constant challenge, I think, for anybody because we live in a world that is characterized by impermanence so we're constantly changing to know myself at 20 is not the same thing as knowing myself at 40 or at 60 so we constantly i think have to reexamine who we are or and what the challenges are before us at any given moment
0: you know one of the things that might run through one's life is a passion for something in particular and in grand you talk about finding one's passion And you quote Martin Luther King, who wrote, Being oneself demands that we discover what we are called to do. So how have those things played out in your own life?
1: Well, in a certain sense, I think we don't find our passion. I think it finds us. What happened to me is that very early in my life, I discovered I had a talent for drawing. And so I was determined to be a cartoonist and illustrator in my teens which I became when I was 17 years old and first published my first stories and drawings. I've been publishing drawings and stories for 55 years now. And it is still a passion, drawing for me and the visual arts. You know it, I knew it by the weight that it had in me. I, I have to draw, it's that simple. But at the age of 18, I was introduced to philosophy and uh, that seduced me completely. Western philosophy, you know, Eastern philosophy, and so it was something I had to commit to for the rest of my life, actually, all the way through a doctorate in philosophy and uh, the study of Buddha Dharma ever since you know I was 18 years old, maybe even a little earlier than that. You know it is something that you will not be happy with in terms of your own life if you don't do it. That is the characteristic of a passion.
0: Well, you seem to have multiple passions. You're a cartoonist, a skilled martial artist, a professor of literature and writing, a novelist, essayist, screenwriter. How did, how did all this happen, and do you sleep?
1: <laughs> uh, I've got most of my adult life losing sleep. I will admit that to you. That, for me, that's the key. Uh, the issue for me is there were so many things I was passionate about, so many things I loved. The question was, how do I bring them all together in one life, you know, in, in my life? And one of the things that helps in regard to that is the fact that all the arts are interconnected. If you uh, find yourself writing, you discover that there's many forms of writing that you can apply yourself to, not just novels and short stories, but screenplays as well, essays. Um, And then the visual arts also kind of play with that because cartoonists are always drawing their ideas from literature, for example. You know, we're we're talking about human activities and they do overlap. One of the problems that I think we've always had with education is we put things in little boxes for the sake of convenience. We say, oh, well, that person, you know, is a painter or this person is a poet or that person is a novelist or this person is an essayist primarily, but it doesn't work that way. Creativity within a person's life is global. That's the way I like to put it. Um, a person might wake up one day with the idea, oh, you know, I've got an essay I'd love to do exploring the mind-body problem. And then the next day, they might wake up and decide, you know, I just had this image and I have to get it out of my head and under the paper. There's a wonderful book I recommend to everybody, edited by Donald Friedman, called The Writer's Brush. Drawings, Painting, and sculpture by Writers. And it covers writers for the last, oh, 150 years. I mean, there's paintings there by Harriet Beecher Stowe, by people who you don't think of as being painters. So, yeah, I've always resisted the idea of being limited by anything or anybody.
0: You know, you write something that prompts my next question. You said, in my life, I've loved so many things. The challenge was how to bring them all together, unified in a single life. That seems to have just fallen into place, or did that require a lot of work and organization?
1: Yes, it required work. I mean, seriously. I started out as a cartoonist and illustrator, and for seven years, that's what I did. Produced two books, hundreds of editorial cartoons, panel cartoons, comic strips. I mean, I, I drew everything possible, you know, from 1965 to 1972. But in 1970, I started writing novels, and, you know, I wound up not being in the philosophy department, which is where I got my PhD in, but in English, because there were no jobs in philosophy in the mid 1970s. And of course, no one is gonna give me promotion or a merit raise on the basis of my drawings in the English department. So one of the things I had to commit to doing is never giving up drawing. You know, I would draw birthday cards for my two kids as they were growing up. Any assignment that came along, I would do it. My first encounter with Tricycle was not an article or an essay. It was several Zen cartoons I did for Buddha Laughing.
0: That's right.
1: And after that, Helen Tworkov asked me to write a piece on Black Americans and Buddhism, which became the article Asanga by Another Name. And then I started, you know, doing other things for Tricycle, which has always been a blessing for me.
0: Also, didn't you have a PBS show?
1: Yes, 1970. I had one of the early <laughs> shows on PBS back when it was still called Educational TV. Right. I pitched the idea to the local PBS station in the college town where I was going to school, Carbondale, Illinois, WSIU-TV. And lo and behold, they had seen my drawings, you know, in cartoons and everything else, in the student paper, in the town paper, you know, called the Southern Illinois. And so they said, well, okay, you know, you want to do a series of lessons 52 lessons in all, 15 minutes each. We can't pay you because we don't pay people, you know, on PBS. So I had to think, I said, okay, this is worth doing. And so we shot it from late 1969, and it was on by the spring of 1970. It showed all over the place. WGBH in Boston, uh, WNET, probably in New York. Uh, It was showed in Chicago, uh, which is the area where I'm from. And it ran for about 10 years, I guess. I've taught a lot of things, actually. Right. I've taught philosophy. I've taught um, martial arts. I've taught cartooning um, because that's a natural thing. If you've learned something and you love it, you want to share that with other people. The one thing I will say, however, is that I am not a Buddhist teacher. I am a student of Buddha Dharma, and I would not insult, in a way, of the people who I admire so much who are teachers, who are committed every day to try to turn the wheel of Dharma in, in a bodhisattva kind of sense, and those people are. One of those people is my friend, uh, Claude Anchen Thomas, who is a mendicant monk, and who I took my vows with in the Soto Zen tradition in 2007. Another friend who is a Lama is Lama Choyan Rangrel, who lives here in Seattle. And he is very immersed in turning the wheel, working with Dalits. Uh, the untouchables in India. And yet another friend who I believe I would call a teacher, I think she would call herself this too, is Jan Willis, uh, who was one of the early pioneers of translating Buddha Dharma from the East to the West here in America. So, you don't call myself a teacher. I simply call myself a lifelong student of Buddha Dharma.
0: Nonetheless, much of your advice is rooted in your own Buddhist practice. And you write that your grandson, for instance, may be judged for his appearance, but that understanding that there is no fixed, unchanging self can help him develop self-acceptance. Can you say something about that?
1: This is a very important question. It goes to the heart of perhaps all questions, which is, who am I? What is the self? We have very interesting discussions of this in the East and the West, going back to David Hume. Um, in his investigations of his self, looking for the self, but finding only what a Buddhist would call thoughts and feelings arising, but no self itself, right? So this kind of meditation uh, investigation is not something that the East has a monopoly on. So yeah, in in Hume, we find that. Uh, Also, we find it in other Western philosophers that understand that to think about the self as a substance or an enduring entity is to commit the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. That phrase comes from philosopher Alfred North Whitehead. What we are, I would say, we are verbs, not nouns. We are processes, not products. And finally, we are becoming, not being.
0: Right. That leads me to think about something else, like although these things lack any concrete or inherent reality, in Buddhism we say they're empty of self, still there are some very powerful constructs. You've written a lot, for instance, about race, the African-American experience in this country, and it's had very real and brutal consequences despite the fact that it's wholly invented. How do we hold these two ideas together?
1: Well, the way I always put it is to... To say that race is a lived illusion, one that has caused enormous suffering for centuries and is behind all the things we talk about that have been the cause of suffering, from slavery to colonialism to segregation in America, apartheid in South Africa. You know, there's two ways you can talk about this in Buddha Dharma. We know. In terms of absolute truth, there is no self. It is a social construct. But in the world in which we live, I call you James (laughs) (laughs) because that's your name. And you call me Charles. We have these tentative identities that we have to operate on. It's like the two truths that we hear about in Buddhism, the absolute truth and the relative truth.
0: Right. So in other words, we get into trouble when we reify these ideas or make them something concrete or truly believe in them.
1: Yes, absolutely. If we reify them, we create an entity that has nothing to do with the person standing in front of us, but has everything to do with what's in our minds. I did a piece once on um, Trayvon Martin. Oh, it was for, perhaps it was for Tricycle. I Possibly. Think. Yeah. yeah, I think it was for a Tricycle. And this man Zimmerman. You know, he he shot Trayvon, but he had been shooting Black people in his mind thousands of times, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, a a day. He had built up a construct of what a Black person is, and he sees Trayvon walking down the sidewalk, and he projects these ideas onto him to such tragic results, right? We have to be very cautious about our thoughts and our ideas, which is why— One of the limbs of the Eightfold Path is mindfulness. And the practice that we have of mindfulness, I think, helps us to look at our ideas just as that, just as ideas that may have nothing to do with the fluid and changing reality of whatever it is right in front of us.
0: You draw wisdom from many traditions and many people, and one of those people is Nelson Mandela. And you quote him as saying, When we can just sit in the face of insanity or dislike and be free from the need to make it different, then we are free. So while that is a reference to inner freedom, in the face of like the racial injustice that we've just recently witnessed public and 400 years of it in this country, there's also this need for change and for action. Um, How how do we see that um, coupled with the inner freedom that we, we hope to cultivate?
1: That very powerful quote from Nelson Mandela, I first encountered in an email sent to me by Ruth King, who you know. Yes. It was stunning to me. I thought, okay, this is really a practice that is demanding to not ask for something to be other than it is, to accept it as it is right here, right now in the present moment, which is the only moment we can live in. We cannot live in the past because it's gone. We cannot live in the future because it hasn't arrived yet, but only right here, right now. Now, having said that, we do understand that it is necessary to eliminate evils that presently exist. We approach this in four ways, or at least I do. There is the good that exists, and we must nurture that. There is the good that is potential but hasn't come into being, and we must try to bring it into being. Similarly, there is the evil that exists, and we need to try to eliminate that. And also, there's the evil that is potential that has not arisen yet. So there's these four you know, directions that we're constantly working on. And over time, I do think we see successes. You know, I asked my father once in the 1960s. He grew up in the 1920s. If things were better, are things better now? And he said, without hesitation, of course they are. Of course they are, compared to what he and my aunts and uncles experienced in South Carolina in the 1920s. It is unquestionably better in the 1960s. It isn't perfect. Again, that's an idea we have in our mind. Perfection? It isn't perfect. But in one of the chapters in Grand, and I'm quoting a little formula by Ruth King, is that life is not personal. It is not permanent, and it is not perfect.
0: Ruth King is a Dharma teacher, in case our listeners don't know her work. She wrote a book called Mindful of Race, Transforming Race from the Inside Out. And you referred to it as a book that Emery could trust. Why is this book important to you? And does Ruth King offer solutions to problems, say, of identity and emptiness that we were just discussing?
1: Well, I don't think she wants to limit herself to just Buddhism, all right? She's a spiritual teacher. We've never met, but we we have corresponded. And I was very impressed by a section of her book where she discusses those three things. Life is not personal, permanent, or perfect. That's wisdom that we can rely on that I think is perennial. In terms of looking for truths that are timeless or close to being timeless, I think that little trifecta of statements is something that we can take into meditation every day, every day, and we will get a reward for, for doing so.
0: Well, since I see Ruth on Dharma retreats up at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, I just assume she's a Dharma teacher, but right. I, I think you're right to point that out.
1: She'd like a larger audience, I think, than just followers of Buddha Dharma. But, right. you know, again, you know, I think it's important to point out, I said earlier that the East doesn't have a monopoly on truth. And I think you will find it in the West as well. You know, if you look at the Rhinoceros Sutra, Ben Franklin gives the same advice about how to choose your friends, right, Um, Right. uh, many, you know, centuries ago. So truth can emerge from anywhere. I'm a big fan, big fan of Marcus Aurelius, who I think could have been a Zen Buddhist priest. And that book of his, Meditations, got me through graduate school. So, you know, you can find wisdom in a lot of different places. My ex-wife used to say to me that you're like a Unitarian. You see, you know, value in every religion that's out there. And I do. Uh, there's good in Islam, there's good in Protestantism, Catholicism, in all of the religions, because we're all asking the same fundamental questions uh, across the East and the West and across time.
0: You do draw from multiple traditions in your book and from multiple people, so it's a pretty broad survey of wisdom traditions in that way. I'd like to ask you about a story you tell that your grandson will one day read if you haven't read it to him already. And it's about a teenage high school student who's on his way home to tell his parents he's been suspended from school. Uh, Someone teased him or taunted him about his dreadlocks and pulled them. He got into a fight, and he was sent home. But on his way home, he finds a moment of peace in a Japanese garden. Um, It's a transformative moment for him, I think. I think that's what you're intending. I wonder how much that story has to do with your own discovery of the spiritual traditions, particularly Buddhism, if that's the case. Or is it just wholly invented? And um, I just had a sense that finding refuge like that, sort of serendipitously for this person who is just becoming a young man, and dealing with feeling like he doesn't belong, discovering something that's transformative to him. Can you say something about that?
1: I first wrote that story for a tribute book to Kubota Garden, created by Fujitaro Kubota, way back, I guess, in the 30s, when he came over from Japan. There's essays and poems and so forth. Uh, the book is called Spirited Stones and some of my friends have contributed to this who are, who are Buddhists like uh, Jason Wirth at uh, Seattle University. He has a wonderful essay in there on the relationship between Kubota garden and Zen, and a particular form of Japanese religion where one experiences awakening and enlightenment through nature. So I wrote the uh, story for that. And then I decided, you know, this could be kind of interesting to include in Grand, where I suggest to readers, you should try to experience something beautiful every day. What happens to Joshua at the beginning, where this kid is pulling his dreadlocks and saying stupid things to him in the locker room, leading to a fight where he's kicked out of school for one day, that's based on an experience I had in high school where this kid was bothering me and uh, we got in the fight. And we were both ex- you know, expelled, not expelled, suspended for two days. Uh, that's where that experience actually comes from. However, about a year ago, even though I have lived in Seattle half my life, I had not been to Kubota Gardens. So about a year ago, I went with a friend and I was stunned. I was stunned by these 20 acres in which you become aware of, first of all, the abundance of oxygen. From all of the plants and nature that's there, and then also your own body as an object among other bodies as you walk up and down, you know, slopes, and, and there's water and there's ponds. The experience is very um, conducive for peace and centering oneself. Since I just discovered the uh, Kubota Garden about a year ago, that was not my introduction to the Buddha Dharma. I first meditated when I was 14 years old, for half an hour. And it was the most transformative 30 minutes i would ever experienced in my life. I came out of it with my head clear, that background static that we always have in consciousness, it was gone. I could look around without judgment, without desire even. I mean, I felt even that I could understand my parents, <laughs> you know, and be compassionate and sympathetic toward them. But I didn't have a teacher at 14 years old for meditation. So I, so I said, I have to be very careful with this. I'm not gonna do this again for a while because it's like having a loaded gun. And I don't know how to use it. So I studied Hinduism, Taoism, um, Buddhism, all the way through my teens, in seminars, academic seminars, uh, college courses. And what happened is by the time I got tenure here at the University of Washington, and it was early tenure after three years, I realized I had to go back to the practice of meditation and not just approach Buddhism and Eastern philosophy as a scholar or academic would. And I found the right teachers, several, and uh, I'm very grateful to them because meditation is very much a part of my life when I'm on my cushion and when I'm off my cushion, moving through my day.
0: You're listening to James Shaheen in conversation with Dr. Charles R. Johnson, discussing his new book, Grand. The Tricycle Talks podcast is a production of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. For nearly 30 years, Tricycle has been dedicated to making Buddhist teachings and practices broadly available, primarily through our print and digital magazine. But did you know that we also offer monthly spiritual films? Weekly Dharma Talk videos, a Buddhism for Beginners educational microsite, an e-book library, and online courses with expert teachers. To learn more, visit us at tricycle.org. Now let's return to James Shaheen in conversation with Dr. Charles R. Johnson. You know, I'm thinking right now about your father saying that things are much, much better and that you're saying that things are much, much better. And you describe yourself at a certain point as an idealist and idealists are bound to be disappointed, especially at a time when America is, in your words, obsessed with otherness. And at the same time, you're a realist and a student of history. And I was wondering how these two work together for you.
1: I've always been an idealist. I'll just admit that. Yet at the same time, I'm perfectly aware of how things in the social world fall short of our ideals. One of the ways I used to answer this question is to say that I am not blind. And I'm quoting a Zen guy. I am not blind to the history of oppression and suffering and all of the racial agonies of the past. But by the same token, I'm not bound by them. And that's something I want my grandson to understand. He is not bound by the past, but he does need to be aware of it. And perhaps to maintain a certain optimism about our species. I think that on the whole, most people are good people. You would ask me a question, <laughs> if I remember correctly, from Henry Louis Gates Jr. Right. I have encountered over the decades and so forth. His taking exception to my saying something about the future of being a post-racial America, I never said that. Mm-hmm. You know what happened is I did a piece on Obama for the American Scholar. You know has a picture of Obama on the front of it, and the editor at the American Scholar wanted to say something about, you know, Obama perhaps issuing in a post-racial America. Well, that's not me talking, because I think race is something very difficult to remove from our experience. Why do I say that? because it's tied to the ego. It's tied to people's sense of self and self-identity. So what this is, is an enlightenment question. It's an enlightenment question. When one does come to realize that, as I say in the book Grand, whatever it is, it's you, okay? Tat-tavam-asi, you are that. When you can realize that, then you can transcend the, the operations of the ego that is always in terms of fearfulness of others and so forth. So it's an enlightenment issue. And, uh, you know, can we expect 8 billion people on the planet right now to experience awakening? I'm not so sure. Even though we have the bodhisattva vow of wanting, you know, to help all sentient beings achieve happiness and freedom from suffering and awakening, it's an ideal that we're shooting for. But we realize how difficult it is. I am, however, hopeful even though at this moment, this hour of our history, I really feel with great sadness that we are at each other's throats. I think we are tearing each other apart on the basis of race, class, gender, whatever differences as we perceive them. Every day we're doing this. You see it in politics to such a point that I almost don't want to look at political candidates anymore. A house divided like this cannot stand. We have to be able to get beyond the tribalism that is smothering our society right now and the divisiveness. And as a Buddhist, I will not do anything to contribute to that at all, ever.
0: You mentioned that all traditions have something of value to offer. And again, you cite Martin Luther King's idea of, quote, an inescapable network of mutuality that binds all people in a single garment of destiny. That's really quite beautiful. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because certainly it resonates with Buddhist ideas as well.
1: Oh, I think it very much resonates with Pratityasamutpada, which is that there is no independent arising. Right, that everything that arises is dependent on something else, many other things, for it to come into being. And King, you know, gave a um, sermon um, called "The Three Dimensions of a Complete Life," which is a chapter in Grand. I talk about that. Because I spent seven years of my life working on King to write a novel called Dreamer, published in 1998, I think it was. But this is something we sometimes forget about King. You know, we focus on King as a civil rights person for black people. But he was a theologian, and he was a philosopher. And one of the things he says in The Three Dimensions of a Complete Life, which is one of his favorite sermons, is that when we get up in the morning, you know, we go and we get our coffee, and it comes from South America. And, you know, before that, we take a shower and the towel that we use, you know, was made in Turkey. Before you walk out the door, according to King, you have relied on the rest of the world. And I do believe that is a sense of interconnectedness that underpins his vision of the civil rights movement, which was a very important vision, nonviolent, as uh, Gandhi's vision was. And I think we've kind of lost, you know, our sense of that today.
0: It's interesting because in the book you talk about King and you say, you know, when we see him as merely this iconic figure, we miss a lot. You want to understand who he was as a human being and as a theologian, as you say. And you wrote a book about it. You spent a tremendous amount of time studying who this person actually was.
1: Well, I spent literally seven years from 1990 to 1997 Researching King, I went to his birth house. I went to the place where he was killed at the Lorraine Motel. I read his sermons. I read his speeches. I read studies of King as a theologian compared to other theologians. All of that to write *Dreamer*, because I needed to understand him better. I thought I didn't understand him well enough in the '60s, even though I was raised in Evanston, Illinois, and he brought the civil rights movement to Chicago in 1966 in January. So I remember when he was there. And he had, you know, his struggle with Mayor Daley at that time. But I really needed to go back to King and try to understand him in in a much deeper way. Then after that, I did with the late civil rights photographer Bob Adelman, who was the official photographer for CORE and SNCC, a book called The Photobiography of Martin Luther King Jr., which is a lot of Bob Adelman's photographs. And they're classic ones. That one in Birmingham where you see the dog pulling at the black man's uh, trousers. Bob took that. He was there. Similarly, with the March on Washington, the shot looking up at King at the microphone, that shot is by Bob. But it has many other photographs of King tracing his entire life from childhood in the photobiography of Martin Luther King Jr. What Bob needed from me was a text. So, since I'd studied King for so long, but my novel's focus is the last two years of his life, I had on hand all the information that I needed, you know, to trace King's life as a text for that photobiography. And then of course I gave lots of talks on King's birthday around the country. So I guess I would say I have spent one fifth of my life devoted to this man and his vision.
0: You know, I wrote you that I thought you were a cautious optimist, and now I wonder if a better description would be a realistic optimist. You do express concern about the next generation's future And you also seem to have, at the same time, a lot of hope or sense of possibility. Is that fair to say?
1: Yes, I do think so. I mean, I think I am a realistic idealist. Um, I really do have hope for our species. Um, When we are at our best, we do remarkable and almost magical things, particularly, in my humble opinion, in the sciences. And that's happening right now. I try to read as a layman as much as I can about what's happening in sciences, because as a philosopher, I know that all of the sciences and disciplines were a part of philosophy. You know, until around 1830, we called science natural philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the things happening right now, I think, are very exciting um, in the sciences. And it was King himself who said in one of his speeches that we have made tremendous advances in the sciences, but we have not made those same advances in our social world. I mean, he pointed that out back in the 60s, that we had lagged behind somehow the remarkable explosion of the sciences from the 1900s forward, right? We hadn't had that same explosion of awakening in terms of spiritual matters in our social lives. Yeah.
0: do you think that's why so many of us turn to the contemplative traditions?
1: Can you say more? What, what do you mean, contemplative?
0: Well, what I, I think you talked about, we haven't seen the same advances in the, the spiritual life of the collective that we've seen in the sciences. Yeah, um, I think I understood you to say that. It just occurred to me that a whole generation, maybe a bit older than I am, maybe your age, came to Buddhism for many reasons, but among them uh, it offered... Um, contemplative tradition that the religions of our birth in many ways either turned away from or they became esoteric.
1: That's a very important point, I think. I was a cradle Christian, okay? Uh, I was raised in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And later, you know, I mean, when I was like in my teens, I I discovered Buddha Dharma. One of the things that King points out in that chapter in the book that I call, you know, which is the title of his sermon, the three dimensions of a complete life. The first dimension is your relationship to yourself. That is one dimension. The second dimension is your relationship to others. And the third dimension, because this is King we're talking about, is your relationship to the divine. For him, as a Christian minister, it's our relationship to God, where he says that we will be restless, until we rest in him. So I conclude that chapter by saying the spiritual register that we all have in our lives, potentially, should not be ignored. And I firmly believe in that, And all of the people you're talking about in the contemplative tradition. That is something we have to work on. You know, if you were to ask me how I approach my life, I would tell you this. When I was in my teens, it hit me that we all have potential. And we have it in three areas: mind, body, and spirit. And I need to work on developing myself in all of those areas. So for the development of mind, I chose philosophy. For the development of body, when I was 19, and to the very this very day, I chose martial arts. And for the development of spirit, I chose Buddha Dharma. And these are like rivers, and they all flow together it's at a certain point. Um, yeah I sound like Aristotle now, right? the actualization of our of our potential, right? But I truly believe in that. And one of the things that I believe in is Agape, which is the unconditional love supposedly that God has for humans, right? But it's also the love that parents have for their children. It is a love that looks at the potential of that child, not in the present because, If you've been a parent, you know, there might be a day when your teenage daughter, you love them, but you don't like them on that day, okay? It's like they're doing something, and you just don't like it, but you will always love them, and you will love them because you knew they will grow grow out of whatever it is annoying you. So that kind of love is very important, loving the potential, even in your enemy. You know, George Wallace was not very lovable in 1968, but King understood that, Because everything changes, he could too. And he did sometime in the 70s. Gandhi understood that as well, I believe, with the British. You love the potential of the other. And you work to encourage the efflorescence of that person's potential.
0: You know, there's a line in the book that I've been grappling with or thinking about since I read it. And I thought it might be interesting for you to comment on it. Here it is. Things we believe we are familiar with already mean too much and always outstrip our perception.
1: Well, I'm a phenomenologist. I was trained as a phenomenologist in philosophy. And we often speak about perception in the terms that Merleau-Ponty spoke about them and Husserl, which is that things are given to us in profiles. We're never given perceptually the whole thing all at once. Now, I'm sitting here in my study, right? I'm looking at the wall where there's books, but I can't see the room on the other side, you know, which is my grandson's room. For all I know, who knows? i was going to sound like Descartes now, like an evil demon, you know, deceiving me. Yeah. Suppose on the other side of my, my bookshelf, there isn't a room. To confirm that, I have to get up, walk around the corner there and look. Oh, yeah, there's a room. We're given things perspectively, and we really need to pay attention to how things are given to us. And we will never reach the horizon of all the possible profiles that any object can offer to us. That means our knowledge is always incomplete and provisional, right? So I can understand something today about, you know, Buddha Dharma, but in the next generation that comes along, they may have a perception of a profile of Buddha Dharma that was not possible for me because they are in a different historical moment, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yes, things are given to us perspectivally and in profile. And so it isn't that things have no meaning. It's rather that they mean too much because we have 8 billion people, roughly 8 billion people on the planet. All those subjectivities, all of those 8 billion consciousnesses can call forth from their situation in the world, from their perspective, a new profile of being. So a being is open-ended. Meaning is open-ended. We bring meaning into the world as a species, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. And it also makes it altogether different to think that one is right about something.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I'm very humble about that now. Mm -hmm. And this is a practice of mine. I link it to right view in the Eightfold Path. I'm always questioning what I think I know. I'm always doing that. And also, I'm always questioning how do... I know something, right? Is it my own original thought from my own original perception? Or is it received, you know, knowledge from somebody else secondhand, right? Or something that I was conditioned to believe in by media, by family, by friends, by my religion even. You know, one of the wonderful things about Buddha Dharma is it's the only religion that frees you from itself, ultimately, right? So we're always questioning. We're always in the interrogative mode and, and we have to be. And that requires humility, giving up what we think we know if we have new evidence to the contrary.
0: You know, you wrote something, you speculate about what your grandson Emery will learn or stumble upon or inevitably discover, and you write, he will realize that it is every serious thinker's job to sustain the frail light of clarity and reason in the ever-present darkness of ignorance, superstition, ideology, dogma, prejudice, and demagoguery. So I was thinking of your mentioning the Eightfold Path in right view, but I also thought it was ideal for the current social climate. There's so much chaos and confusion, there's violence, there's despair, and yet you maintain a kind of optimism that we're capable of doing what I just read.
1: I know we're capable because it's a human potential. It's not limited to any one person. Reason. I mean, you know, this is the thing that seduces you about philosophy and the ancient Athenians, the value that they placed on reason. Buddha Dharma is not that different in many ways. I've often looked at early Buddhism as being kind of like a proto-phenomenology. Evidence is of primary importance in law, in science. We have to have a certain rigor when we experience things and look at things in the world. And that means uh, thinking rationally and thinking logically, which is why one of the chapters in Grand is a kind of overview of the major logical fallacies that we commit 95% of the time every day, the worst of which is sweeping generalizations about others. I cringe when I hear someone say, well, you know, all white people are like this, or all black people are like this, or all women are like this, or all Muslims are like this. You know, that is a very dangerous thing to do. Because all you got to do is get one example, and that is a logical fallacy because you've just said all. You might say some men are like this, right? Um, That's qualifying things a little bit better. But, you know, we, we really have to hold our own feet to the fire to maintain a certain mental and spiritual rigor if we're going to survive.
0: I just wanted to comment on the logical fallacies. I think you selected 14 of them, and they were a lot of fun to read. But we're running out of time, and I just had one last question. What kind of world do you envision for your grandson then?
1: I don't know yet. (laughs) You know, I'm not even sure what an ideal world would be like for him. It's hard for me to project into the future. I don't have a crystal ball, but I do know I would like for him and all the members of his generation to experience happiness, however they define that, and freedom from suffering. And you know that's the basic desire of every bodhisattva, or every practicing Buddhist. I wouldn't go into specifics about, well, I think it should be this kind of political system or that kind of economic system, because that I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. But I do know happiness, and whoever it is we're talking about, happiness and freedom from suffering is every sentient being, and every human is looking for that.
0: Okay. Well then I lied. I'll ask one more question. I'll read, so, I'll, I'll read something to you and you can tell me a little bit more about it. You wrote, but I would be wrong and I would lie if I told Emery that the pain we experience in life will completely heal. This is what it means to be human and to experience a more perfectly realized broken heart when we see ourselves potentially in every victim and victimizer in every slayer and the slain. That's a little bit truncated, but I thought it was quite beautiful.
1: Well, actually, I'm borrowing or echoing a thought from the Bhagavad Gita. You know, you are the slayer as well as the slain. You know, Krishna, you know, talking to Arjuna. But I also think as one certainly gets old, older, (laughs) you know, I'm 72, that, yeah, earlier in life you may get bruises, you may get scar tissue. You may experience pain, and you may cause pain to others you know, um, maybe inadvertently or consciously. And that is part of being human, understanding our capacity to hurt and cause pain and also to endure pain, which allows us then to understand the pain and suffering of others. You know, we we have mirror neurons, right? (laughs) But it's kind of hard to understand suffering that someone else is going through if you haven't suffered yourself. So I'm not saying suffering is good or scar tissue is good. I say it's inevitable in the book. And we can learn from it. We can, we can use that to um, to realize the more perfect, perfectly realized broken heart.
0: Charles Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great pleasure speaking with you today.
1: Thank you, James. This has been a pleasure, a privilege, and an honor to be able to speak with you today.
0: You've been listening to Charles Johnson discuss his new book, Grand, here on Tricycle Talks. If you'd like to hear more episodes, visit us at org slash podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org or leave us a review on your podcast player. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest at Argo Studios in New York City. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.